Welcome to Prio's Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trichauger, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. The last few months in Afghanistan have been indelibly marked by the return of the Taliban. Or more accurately, their return to power, since, as we'll hear in today's podcast, they never really left. Before the Taliban regained control of the country this year, before they were the target and adversary of U.S. military force, the Taliban were the governing force in Afghanistan. And before that, they were a transnational group of religious students. To give context to modern-day Afghanistan and the political developments there, Priya researcher Christian Bagharpviken provides a brief history of the Taliban on today's episode, in addition to sharing some of his experiences doing research in Afghanistan during 1990s Taliban rule. Welcome back to the podcast, Christian. Um, Thank we, you. <laughs> thanks for being here. We uh, have talked quite a lot about Afghanistan in the last year, and we've mostly talked about current events when you've come on the podcast, and it's often been kind of a reaction to the many quite um, sometimes shocking, sometimes not necessarily shocking, but uh, very interesting developments there. And I wanted today to go back to the Taliban and kind of the roots of the Taliban, because they are, of course, major players in Afghanistan now, but a lot of people don't know so much about their history. Um, so that's what we're going to focus on today. And let's just start from the beginning. Who are the Taliban and what are their origins? You know, the Taliban is a Pashtu word. It means it means the uh, truth seekers, uh, the religious students. It's a commonly used term throughout Afghanistan. It comes from the Arab Talib. Uh, but in in Arab plural, it's not Taliban, it's Taliban. So it already tells you something also about the, the ethnic anchoring of the Taliban. They're very much sort of anchored within the traditional Pashtun societies in the rural south and east of, uh, of Afghanistan. Now, as an organization, it really emerged in late August 1994. Until then, there was no formal organization with the name Taliban. But Taliban as a term was used because that was, that applied to everybody who studied Islam in the madrasas, in the traditional religious uh, educational institutions throughout rural Afghanistan and certainly in Pakistan as well, where the madrasa system expanded massively during the during the war in Afghanistan in the 1980s, when the Pakistan-based resistance movement basically fought the Soviet-supported so-called communist government in in Kabul. So that was a massive apparatus of socialization that was built during the 1980s with support from a number of Muslim countries and from the West. Mm. Uh, and of course, there is an irony here because that was the institutions that in many ways the Taliban grew out of. No, there was a madrasa system before that, and the term Taliban was certainly used before that. Um, the Taliban are followers of what is called the sort of the Deobandi school of thought. And Deoband is a famous religious, religious institution in religious education institution in India. So this was part of the uprising against the uh, Brits, actually, mm -hmm. and the Deobandi were extremely, uh, uh, were violently opposed to modern education, which they saw as an instrument of colonization. Okay. And then when India was split in two, uh, became Pakistan and India in uh, 1947, the partition that followed the uh, the so-called the liberation from the British then a number of religious institutions were built up in Pakistan. Uh, and those are the institutions that many of the 
most educated leaders within the Taliban have been trained in. So they were big, fairly sophisticated religious institutions built up in Lahore, in Karachi, in Rawalpindi, in Peshawar, in Quetta, and so forth. And this is sort of a sort of a transnational system of education which really spans the border that otherwise divides Pakistan from from Afghanistan. So these people are traveling back and forth. Mm. So they have a long tradition of uh, interacting with the clergy in Pakistan and virtually see themselves as part of one and the same and follow the same religious dogma, the same values, many of the same orientations. So that is that is sort of the historical roots of the of the Taliban. And that also meant that although although a number of institutions were built up with foreign support, not the least Saudi support in the 1980s, the Taliban were fairly resistant to the sort of Wahhabi doctrine that the that the Saudis wanted to impose on the Afghans. So that was never well received. And uh, over time, the Saudis come to realize that uh, the Deobandi school of thought wasn't all that bad anyhow, and in many ways, when it comes to religious dogma, uh, pretty much compatible with their own mode of thought, with the exception that the Taliban, in its version, isn't only occupied with the religious dogma, but uh, also very much rooted in traditional uh, modes of thinking and practice and uh, ethics in, in Pashtun. Pashtun society. So is there also an ethnic element here to to the Taliban, or is it mainly um, a religious sect connection between people of kind of the followers that, that the ethnic this? question the ethnic question is really very interesting. Uh, and perhaps here we should focus on a period in Afghanistan's history from nineteen ninety two to nineteen ninety four. 1992 is when the Soviet-supported uh, communist government fell. Mm. Well, Soviet had already fallen apart. So there wasn't much support to gain from, <laughs> from Moscow anymore, which is partly why it fell. Uh, the so-called Mujahideen, the Pakistan-based resistance, took power in Kabul. Within weeks, started to fight each other very much along ethnic lines. So there was massive ethnic violence. People were basically killed at checkposts simply for belonging to the wrong ethnic groups. I was I was there multiple times in that period and it was really awful. Mm. Uh, nothing else to say about it. And it was against this background that in a sense the Taliban popped up and presented itself as the uh, as the saviors. Uh, and there is a certain tradition for that in Afghan society that religious leaders step forward in times of crisis and takes responsibility and then ultimately hands power over to to other elites. And that's what they said in 94 when they took power too, by the way, that they would ultimately hand over power to others, which, as we know, they didn't. Against this background of ethnic fighting, which was very, very ugly, the Taliban, as I said, presented themselves as religious saviors. Their self-understanding is very much that they are rooted in religion and in a particular interpretation of religion and that their authority is religiously based mm. but the fact of the matter was that the all, all the, the all leadership of the of the Taliban stemmed from the Pashtun heartland in the south around Kandahar surrounding provinces particularly Uruzgan mm. they all hail from that particular area 
And of course, for anybody who isn't a Pashtun, the Taliban is very much a Pashtun movement. So there is a sort of distance there between the Taliban's not only self-presentation, but even their self-understanding and how they were perceived by others. Hmm. Now, it should be said that over time, the Taliban started very actively to try to recruit also within other ethnic groups, within the Tajik ethnic group, amongst Uzbeks, uh, amongst, uh, amongst the Nuristani, the only exception being the Hazara, who are Shia Muslims. So there's a religious incompatibility there. But if you look at the Taliban today, they have uh, quite wide support outside the Pashtun areas. A lot of people in the Taliban movement have other ethnic backgrounds, although uh, the main leadership of the Taliban still remains Pashtun and still actually consists of many of the same people that founded the Taliban back in 1994. Mm. Before we get to their gain and then loss of power in Afghanistan, I wanted to ask you a little bit about their appeal to people. Because from our perspective in the West, I think, you know, of course, we see this from a very negative perspective. And that is very natural and and completely fair. However, there has to be a reason that they did end up gaining power. Who did they appeal to? I mean, who who wanted to join their movement at the time. And and I guess also now maybe there's a difference there. Um, maybe things have evolved. Mm. But what was their appeal? For a lot of people in rural Afghanistan in particular, the sort of ethical code that the Taliban applies isn't all that different from how they would normally live their lives. I have met old Pashtun men who would never let their women go outside the house without being covered, who nonetheless are furious because suddenly there is a young Talib standing there with a Kalashnikov telling them what to do. Mm. Not that they would do it in the absence of the Talib, but it is different to being told by a youngster (laughs) what to do. So that irritates, but it's not really a big problem uh, for many. But then the question is what attracts, and that's a different question. And I think... Attraction here is relative. What the Taliban replaced was such a dismal situation. Back in the 1990s, from 94 onwards, took a couple of years for the Taliban from they were established to they actually took power in Kabul and hence controlled most of the Afghan territory. Back then, what they replaced was mismanagement, repression, crime. You know, I when I visited Kabul just a few weeks after the Taliban takeover in September '96, I met with uh, I met with feminist women who'd been running night letters and were very very active, and very radical. Uh, and they, at that time, uh, before the Taliban really had shown its true face, would say, "Well." We don't really know what to expect from these guys, but at least right now we can walk the streets of Kabul in the night without fear of being raped. Mm. And that is progress. Mm. I'm sure if I talked to them two months later and the Taliban had shown its true face, they would have had more to say about the matter. Mm. But the situation they came from uh, is not to be romanticized. Right, so it's a lesser of two evils situation for exactly, and I think that is the case for a lot of people. The Taliban's vision of governance is really, it's really a lean governance model, and it's really a very lean conception of what it is that the state should offer. Hmm. Uh, it's about law and order, and that's it. Right, and law here means Islamic law. Uh, and order means physical security. Everybody should be able to move safely around. 
and they're willing to police that with quite extensive presence of their own security forces and so forth. But beyond that, you know, the state providing welfare services, be that health, education or other things, has not been so important for the Taliban. It looks like they're a little bit more preoccupied with that now, realizing that people have seen something else over the past 20 years. Yeah. But I still don't think we will see uh, the Taliban pursuing any sort of a vision of a welfare society. Sure. So now getting to this this question of gaining and then losing power, I mean, I think more people listening to this will know the story of them losing power, but I'd still like to cover it. But let's start with the gaining of power. Um, what was the turning point for them going from this like you said, transnational religious um, uh, organization that wasn't necessarily uh, ga- gaining any kind of real political power to then suddenly being in charge of, of the country of Afghanistan. Well, you know, in the 1990s, it's one thing. They were pretty much received as saviors, waving their white flags, coming in on pickups and being welcomed in one community after the other. The fighting didn't really start until they approached the capital, Kabul. And then there was some very heavy fighting. Uh, but they won uh, with relatively little effort. Massive losses, but nonetheless. And then there was fighting in a couple of geographical areas throughout the next few years. But uh, but really, by and large, the country was fairly peaceful and fairly secure. It There was massive repression, <laughs> undoubtedly. Uh, but that's a different side of the coin. Mm. And then in... 2021, when they sort of regained power, they had built up very, very gradually over almost 20 years. The Taliban was really a crushed force in 2001. Mm. They smoldered uh, facing the aerial bombardment of the US and its allies and the uh, massive alliance of foot soldiers, Afghan foot soldiers, it should be said, that the the Americans mobilized to uh, fight in the invasion. But Within a couple of years, you could see the leadership already starting to make the moves, uh, issuing calls for some of its old foot soldiers to start to mobilize. In the first years, they were very much fighting from across the border in Pakistan. So they enjoyed sanctuary in Pakistan. A lot of the attacks were sort of uh, night raids where they would cross the border. Uh, But then in 2006, 2007, you could see that the Taliban had built up a military machine capable of really um, really organizing quite massive attacks. 2006 was a season where they tried traditional warfare, again, with enormous losses. So that was a one-year, that was a one-year experiment before they went back to uh, a combination of guerrilla warfare and terror. And prior to 2001, the Taliban wasn't really a terror organization. They didn't use terror as part of their repertoire of military tactics. But from 2003, when they executed their first suicide mission to within a few years they really executed suicide missions used improvised uh, vehicle bombs and road bombs on an industrial scale and the, uh, the the losses of the afghan government forces and the international forces are well as well were massive as were the losses of the taliban themselves of course hmm uh, so you kind of started to answer my next question, but that was basically what have they been up to? What have they, where have they been and what have they been doing since they lost power and then ending up now in 2021? Now we did cover this quite extensively. The latest events we covered quite extensively in a podcast episode from, I think it was in August. Um, so kind of right after everything developed in Afghanistan. And I will link to that in the description, but 
between <laughs> between 2001 and 2021. Hmm. Well, at the risk of oversimplifying, I think we could sort of in those years when the Taliban massively expanded their uh, their reach, um, we could we could say that there was a sort of a three-year model in which the Taliban would sort of first, they would detect an area which they thought were sort of ripe for starting to build up influence. They would send some emissaries uh, who obviously would know people in the local community, perhaps religious leaders, perhaps traditional leaders, would link up with them, would issue a few warnings, tell them that they uh, they would need to report to them, would need to prepare the ground. Then the next years, they would perhaps come back, uh, establish a... uh, Temporary presence, uh, move around uh, in pickups and not necessarily visibly during the day, but certainly during the night they would move around and they would visit more houses and uh, they would perhaps even pull off a few court cases. Then court cases? Court cases. Well, yes, we'll come back to the court cases. <laughs> then in year three, they would really try to establish themselves more permanently. Uh, and by then they would have a sufficient number of people, not the least local leaders in their grip that they could uh, really exert influence, that they could move around freely even during the daytime. That doesn't mean they necessarily control the territory fully. It would still be sort of disputed territory and there would potentially also be fighting between government forces and the Taliban. But they would have the ability to really move around. And interestingly, what they would do would be to set up some sort of a shadow administration. And being preoccupied with law and order the main element of that shadow administration would be a court. Okay. The official, the government's judicial system was absolutely corrupt, ineffective, unable to pull anything off, and you knew that whoever was willing to pay the highest bribes would eventually win whatever legal dispute there was. The Taliban came in with their very effective execution of uh, verdicts. Uh, they would even execute the penalties on the same night, even if they were grave. So there's not much uh, there's not, not not much security for whoever is <laughs> whoever stands uh, on trial here but uh, it was nonetheless quite popular in many many areas because it was felt that it was fair it was effective you didn't have to pay bribes so uh, that was uh, that was a very very effective branding for what the Taliban stood for so again you know the Taliban a very lean idea of what the government is about it's about law and order But they are able to provide law and order in a fairly consistent manner. And people, in many cases, would rather have that than a government that offers, that that promises to offer everything, but doesn't really offer anything in a credible manner or an effective manner. Hmm. Uh, Going back to the 90s, you actually did research, and you just mentioned that you were there right after the Taliban officially took power, um, you were on the ground, you were talking to people, you were doing research. What was it like doing research under the Taliban in the 90s? Well, it was easy and difficult at one and the same time. Uh, the easy part uh, is simply that it was quite secure, uh, fairly predictable. Traveling around was absolutely unproblematic, and I, as a foreigner, could feel, could feel absolutely secure. Now, the difficult part was that This was a very repressive regime, and the consequences for the Afghans that I worked with could be severe. Uh, And I worked with Afghans directly as uh, in collaborators in research, people who would do 
interpretation, analysis, uh, and so forth. Uh, and they, of course, could easily become caught in the middle if I ended up in some sort of a skirmish with a local Taliban leader, which happened uh, on a couple of occasions. Uh, so that was very, very difficult to manage. And then to try to be uh, become myself the center of attraction rather than uh, hmm. than have them uh, have them penalize the Afghans who were just working uh, for me uh, was a trick. But also the local populations that hosted us were potentially at risk. Uh, and we had to, when working there, uh, establish sort of a trusting relationship in which the local population understood that we were talking to the Taliban and therefore had their permission to do what we do, did, but at the same time did not report on them on sensitive issues. So that was a tricky balancing game. Uh, and miraculously, we succeeded in doing that. And I'm saying we because we were really a team uh, uh, doing this and we had extensive discussions about how to handle this every night and every morning or breakfast. Uh, but it did work out. Uh, and I don't know anybody facing severe consequences. But there were instances which were very, very difficult to to handle. There were plants that we called off. We had uh, one particular village which was home to a lot of uh, contentious politics over the years where we really wanted to do field work but we picked up some signals that there was something brewing and we decided to delay it a little bit uh, and then next week before we knew it the Taliban had uh, revealed a Iran an Iranian supported ploy to uh, stage an uh, armed uprising in uh, in the area where we were working so we, we had been there at the time that could have meant risk not only to us, not only to the Afghans working for us, uh, but certainly also to the locals that we were engaging with. So uh, mm. the risks were very, very real. Mm. But um, by the end of the day, uh, it still is the case that back in the 1990s under the Taliban rule for me as a foreign researcher to, researcher to conduct research in Afghanistan, was considerably easier than it has been over the past 10 to 15 years. Hmm. I'm also curious about the gender aspect. Were there any foreign female researchers who were able to do field work or were they uh, at, at a much higher risk or how, how were they, if you knew any, how were they received? Oh, absolutely. You know, when I went to Afghanistan in 99 to do, to spend uh, three months and conduct um, conduct research for, for my PhD. We went to Herat in the Northwest and we were a team of three Norwegian researchers, uh, the two others at uh, the Christian Mikkelsen Institute, one of them being a female anthropologist. Uh, and we had talked at length about how to do this and we were very eager to, for example, uh, interview the men and the women of the same households so that we could hear, mm. you know, compare perceptions of what we were studying migration uh, from different aspects, how it had been to be uh, migrating. Many of those people had been to Iran for extended periods. Uh, the differences between the male and the female perspective on returning you know, to a life in Afghanistan, which, which was often quite tough. Mm. More liberties in Iran, uh, more, more, you know, access to drinking water and electricity and all that, things that uh, uh, could matter more for women than for men. Mm. Uh, and and we, did, we did find that. But unfortunately, our, 
our ambition to systematically compare across a, a number of households was interrupted because the interpreter or my female colleague um, um, got into a skirmish with the Taliban leader and went into hiding and it was a big episode and it was difficult to handle. Uh, mm. It eventually went well, uh, but it did mean that we weren't able to pull through our research. Even so, it was possible for foreign women to travel and work in Afghanistan and the Taliban, and I know many who did so, not only in research, but also in uh, the aid community and with multilateral organizations. Hmm. Uh, the main problem really was to... Uh, and they were able to interact with Afghan women. Hmm. That wasn't a problem. Yeah. But the main problem was for Afghan women to uh, to work themselves. And the restrictions on the free movement of Afghan women under the Taliban were very, very severe. Hmm. So running off a little bit here, what kind of lessons learned would you share in the in the situation that is happening now in Afghanistan? I mean, I don't know if you have any imminent plans to be going there or doing any research, but um, based on the experience that you had previously, what kind of advice would you give? Well, personally, I hope to be able to go there as soon as possible. And I'm really uh, monitoring the situation. And the only thing holding me back now is... Is exactly the problem that I'm, my presence may be implying a risk for people that I work with. Mm. So until I get a little bit more of an overview over the situation and the acceptance of conducting research, I'm, uh, I'm holding back. But I do think that research uh, is going to be very, very important in uh, the months and years uh, ahead. The ability to conduct independent research, independent media reporting for that matter is going to be super important. Mm. And it has to be uh, conscientiously done and it has to be done in an understanding with the Taliban. And without that, the international community really is also deprived of the information that it needs on what it is that uh, the situation is in Afghanistan, what it is that the Taliban does and doesn't, uh, which is the basis for an informed dialogue with the Taliban. And I'm not arguing that the Taliban are easy to deal with. They're very difficult to deal with. Hmm. But right now we are facing a situation where already the majority of Afghanistan's population by far is living beyond the poverty line. Hunger is on the horizon. Uh, we cannot choose not in any way to engage with Afghanistan. That is absolutely uh, irresponsible. Uh, and I think the engagement needs to go beyond just sending humanitarian aid. There is a need for an engagement, even with as unpleasant and difficult a regime as the Taliban. And for that dialogue to be uh, informed, research, media reporting, uh, and the presence of independent observers is of the essence. Thanks for picking Prio's Peace in a Pod. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute Oslo, Prio, located in Norway. For more information, visit prio.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trigg Hauger. Music by Martha Nuttall. Special help this week from Fuka Iwase.